Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am so excited. You guys are excited. Haven't done a COVID episode in uh, in a couple months for no reason in particular. Uh, it's just the way that it works out sometimes. And I, I know in the Discord, on the message boards and stuff, you guys have been um, asking for another one. So this is actually, we don't have an academic today. We have a journalist joining us today. I'm very, very excited. Uh, author of the new book, which just came out yesterday at the time that this podcast is releasing. Uh, it is A Shot to Save the World, the inv- uh, the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID-19 vaccine. Gregory Zuckerman is joining us today. Gregory, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. We figured out Bluetooth together. This is, uh, this is, it's been, Gregory, I used to record every single one of my podcasts in person, a little background. I'm uh, by trade a a stand-up comedian. Um, I also do science communication as well, but I started this podcast when I was touring around. I would look up local universities and be like, oh, that seems like an interesting topic and go and talk to scientists about it as like a fun little hobby. And then it turned into the thing that I care about more than comedy. And and, uh, so normally we would have been doing this in person. And since COVID, I've been dealing with uh, with tech issues <laughs> every every single week and teaching various people how to use headphones and things like that. And so we both got to learn a bunch. We all have a contribution to make. Uh, to this <laughs> do, do you find that, that scientists try to make jokes with you and try to impress you with their, their humor or no? Because I got to figure out whether I should uh, try well, there's a few things that happen. One, people are nervous that there's an expectation for that, which yeah, there's a not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we talk yeah. about like MS and cancer and all sorts of like hyper serious subjects not funny. and, and not stuff. Funny. Yeah. No. Um, and uh, so it's always the so so there's so there's different ways that. Uh, different personalities react to finding out that I'm a stand-up comedian. And one, this this is I consider this a science podcast. I, that's how it's listed on iTunes yeah, and everything yeah, else. Yeah. It's not a comedy podcast. Yeah. Um, but sometimes people are like, "Ooh, can I swear?" So, sometimes you get that, and which the answer is yes. I don't, but uh, because that's I, I don't want to make my guests feel uncomfortable if their kids are watching or something. But sometimes people get excited that they get to uh, speculate a little more, get a be a little looser, maybe nice, st- nice. drop a drop a f bomb from time to. T- and then the other uh, the other side of it is people are very nervous that there's an expectation to be funny which there isn't as at all um and so if we happen to have a laugh or two along the way that's i i would say that this this isn't any funnier than any other normal uh, uh podcast out there or the at least that's not my intention when i go into it but sometimes i can't stop myself um but uh yeah so so talk about first of all what's your what's your background 
So I've been at the Wall Street Journal uh, since 1996. That's a long stretch of time, quarter century. Most people don't stay at any one business, let alone a newspaper <laughs> or media property that long. Uh, but I've done all kinds of things here and they've allowed me to roam. So I love it. Um, I mostly write about business topics uh, historically. I've written about markets related, big investors. I now am in part of an investigative group. So I do investigative stories, dig into malfeasance and, and successes and all kinds of things and, and share the world. So um, yeah, I'm something of an investigative reporter and I became sort of obsessed as I kind of do uh, with the chase for the vaccines uh, early on uh, during the pandemic, partly because um, it provided a bit of a distraction, I think, for me. You know, we we're all trying to deal with our new world and um, I had kids who were in school and had to come home and, you know, we're all a little bit nervous and concerned. And it gave me something um, to almost um, distract me and, and root for. And I'm in a vantage point where I, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm grateful. I get to talk to the players, the people that were chasing the vaccines from all over the world. And some succeeded and some failed. And I thought I'd um, track their progress and chronicle it in, in this book I, I've written. So I'm uh, that's kind of what I threw myself into. That is uh, so cool. Yeah, I've been, you know, I had when COVID first started, I was fortunate enough. I had reached out to past, you know, epidemiologists and stuff that I'd already had on the show. But I, I think maybe maybe a good six months before COVID, I had this just incredibly um, uh, uh, brilliant um, uh person on the on a live show where I combined comedy and uh and stand up and I just I remember um uh, her name's Nina Pfefferman and she gave a a talk about mathematically um uh, she's a she was a theoretical mathematician became an applied mathematician with, with uh epidemiology and i remember it was just another show i did like three of these shows a week i had two scientists on each show in a in a different city and uh and it never even really uh you know did the show nice to meet you yeah, see you yeah, later yeah. and then covid came around and i was like oh wait a second i should have paid a little more attention to well, it's, not, it's not just you so i write in my book about how um there were all these conferences events in january of 2020 there's a famous one the uh, jp morgan biotech healthcare um, executives from all over the world come to San Francisco. We're talking tens of thousands of them, investors, executives. They all packed into this, these rooms, conference rooms, suites, et cetera, in San Francisco. And um, without being too concerned, nervous, and these are the experts. These are the people that try to anticipate the future of the healthcare world, the biotech world, et cetera. And there were all kinds of events I write about like that. So January, as, as, as late as January, late January of of 2020, they too weren't even too concerned about this emerging uh, virus. Yeah, I had. So my first experience was I had. Um, so it was this show stand up science that I was often touring with, but I did other shows as well. And so I there was about two months in um, uh, like. December, January, I wasn't really talking with scientists like I, I normally do because I was doing other shows. And then uh, early February, 
I was going to do a show in uh, in Phoenix, or uh, and I I remember or Glendale, Arizona, and the a biologist was like. Yeah, you know, there's this there's this COVID thing that I'm worried about. I'm just not sure that I'm comfortable being in a in a room with people right now and it canceled on me last minute and I was like, wow. Okay, whatever the I had never even heard of COVID at this point. I was I don't watch the news. I, I like listen to audiobooks in my car and that's it. Yeah. Uh and then uh, I was like, "Well, if you still want to record a podcast with me, I can." And and she was like, "Yeah, maybe." And and I usually I go to people's home or office and she's like, being weird about it. I'm like, I don't know. Do you want to come to my Airbnb? Like what? I couldn't, I didn't understand where she was coming from. And, and she's like, well, maybe we could record outside. I'm like outside. There's like noise issues and stuff. No, I can't. And she's like, maybe I could do a conference center in the, in the university, but you'd have to promise to uh, not get within six feet from me. And like, we couldn't shake hands or anything. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> crazy hypochondriac person i why don't we just do this the next time that i'm through after all of this has blown over and she is like okay fair enough but um you know it, you should probably stock up on some uh necessities and stuff because uh, i'm telling you once this comes through there's going to be some panic and like who knows what there's going to be shortages on and i'm like all right i guess i'm <laughs> uh, that was an interesting experience talking with that lunatic and sure enough within <laughs> within two or three weeks i was like oh this is a this is a real thing that's happening yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, and it definitely was <laughs> so what was what were those early days from from your point of view from your investigations what were did did you investigate any of like the early kind of uh alarm calls that were done at the time so I spent a lot of time figuring out what the different approaches were. So obviously today we realize there are, are two, more like three successful approaches, the mRNA one, the ad vector adenovirus um, vector, uh, viral vector um, approach, which led to, to J&J and the Oxford Zeneca, uh, AstraZeneca approach, and then Novavax protein subunit. But um, we all know that there are other um, more traditional approaches to vaccines, and there are many that were early on ro rolling up their sleeves, trying to get funding there too. Uh, you know, attenuated, killed, etc. They're more traditional approaches that we're familiar with that have led to all the mumps, um, measles, all the, the the kind of polio stuff in the past that that we all are familiar with. Those, those chases, those events. So anyway, I, yeah. So I tried to understand all the different approaches, um, including the successful ones and puns that ultimately we haven't um, heard much about. So we're talking the big companies and, and what they were up to, what their plans, what, what their goals were, but also little tiny um, universities and, and um, outfits and different organizations that also early on were pretty ambitious and, and, and hopeful and, and they had promising ideas, but they didn't really pan out. Mm. So, it, I mean, there must have been, uh, because... Often when when people consider, you hear quite a bit of um, 
uh, yeah, I post various things on social media. You hear a lot of people talk about the the financial incentive and and look how much money these these companies are making off of these things. And I, I think that's true when you're successful, but there's there's a, a lot of people that I'm sure had a lot of investments along the way. There was a lot more companies that invested along the way that things just didn't work out for them. That is very true. It's important to remember, but it's also important to remember, and I emphasize it uh, in my book, that vaccine work was not very popular until 2020. Um, companies who, who wanted to focus on vaccines were discouraged by their investors, by their backers. Um, we all know that um, therapeutics, drugs are much more profitable, more can be more successful. You yeah. know, you take a statin and you keep taking the statin throughout your life. Whereas vaccines, and, and I start off my book going back into the chase for an HIV vaccine. And back then too, you had some of the bigger players, pharmaceutical makers who wanted to discover a vaccine, but it wasn't usually, it wasn't mostly those guys. There's a little tiny company called Microgenesis that I focus on early on in my book. And for that reason, I think it emphasizes the point that it took, it was these kind of smaller, um, more uh, ambitious uh, companies, less uh, conservative that could chase these vaccines because there was limited up potential upside and a lot of downside, a lot of opportunity cost, a lot of wasted time. And I write in my book about how Merck, um, one of the vaccine giants, sort of dragged its feet on COVID-19, didn't really want to find, I mean, they want, if, if, if it fell in the lap, great, but they didn't really want to spend too much time chasing the vaccine. So that's one thing I don't think people appreciate. Now, obviously, right. Moderna and BioNTech are, they have piles of cash, they have piles of profits and billions, and people are saying maybe too much, et cetera. But again, until 2020, vaccine work was not very sexy. Yeah, yeah. It's just not uh, kind of a, well, I mean, there's boosters and everything, but a, a mostly one and done preventative treatment with not a exceptionally high profit margin yes, just yes. Is, is not when you compare it with something like antidepressants or Viagra yeah. or yeah. anything else like that that you're, yeah. you're taking. And, really. and, and frankly, they may have changed. Now we're in this new era of vaccines. We just have one approved for malaria. There are others coming, I believe. Um, both malaria and other kinds of illnesses and pathogens, but that again, this this COVID and sometimes come way, in some ways COVID nineteen has, has changed everything in terms of pharmaceutical industry, biotech industry, uh, and the view of vaccines by investors. That's really interesting. I I've, I would love to talk a, a lot about that, but well, I mean, first of all, I let I let my guests steer the ship, and I haven't read your book yet. It it, it hasn't. Um, come out at the time that uh, uh, that I'm recording this. So I'll, I'll let you um, kind of start how you want, but I would really love to know a little bit about how uh, that that change that has created what the what the pharmaceutical company uh, industry rather looked like before the COVID-19 vaccine and how you think it looks now and what that might mean going forward in the future. Sure. So I think it's really important to uh, keep in mind that the three biggest vaccine makers going into 2020, going into COVID-19 and the pandemic were GSK, Sanofi, and Merck. And not one of them has produced a successful vaccine for this 
this pathogen. And I think it's for, for, for important reasons. Um, the big guys who you would have expected to, to save us, these are the um, kind of companies and efforts and scientists that we usually turn to and have produced all kinds of vaccines that we rely on today. They had an interest, I think, in pursuing COVID-19, but we need to remember that going into 2020 and in early 2020, the consensus view of experts was that we could maybe find a vaccine in a year and a half or so. I think that's what um, Tony Fauci said at one point. That's what a lot of scientists I talked to at the time, and I quote in my book, said that to expect an, an effective, a protective vaccine in the next I don't know, six months to a year was pretty um, uh, unlikely. And yet, 330 days or so after the sequence was released, we had a vaccine. So I don't think, I think we're so close to it that we don't appreciate yet how remarkable this achievement is. I mean, to me, it's the most uh, historic achievement of modern science. And yeah. we, we really are going to look back and, and appreciate it, but we're too close to it right now. So getting back to your point, yeah, it, it, vaccine work was not very popular going into 2020. And it really took some outsiders, some really unlikely characters, scientists, researchers to, to develop these um, life-saving vaccines. Yeah. I've, I've made this, I've, I was talking with a, um, a friendly acquaintance on on social media when I got my vaccine because I was I was so uh, I was just so ha- not not just that I was uh, getting a lot of uh, protection from COVID, yeah. But but I, it just felt like I was uh, I was part of like you said one of the greatest scientific uh, advances of our time, and to me it it felt like it. I mean, it's you can't see viruses anyway. Humans have always had a hard time with germ theory and appreciating it, and and even and even figuring out the new. Uh, you know, in in the last week, I've had multiple. I've been around multiple people that have referenced like you know dropped something something on the ground like a piece of food on the ground and like uh oh COVID like. No, you aren't you you aren't quite getting how this game has changed. How uh, you, you aren't quite getting that this is a respiratory virus and yeah, yeah, like yeah. getting it and and people have a real hard time it, and the idea of getting someone on the moon or something like that is like neat and terrific and it's easy to see and it it seems just like easier for people to appreciate in a way but to me, this mRNA um, vaccine, especially not just because of COVID, but what it might mean going forward in terms of uh, what it might do and potentially uh, uh, treatments or uh, the potential in our battles against cancer and and things like that. It's just yeah. so exciting. Yeah. And someone was just like shocked to hear me say that. Like wow. this is uh, like a vaccine is just something you begrudgingly take a chance at getting or whatever. I'm like, no, I was like, I was so excited to get it. I'm excited to get a booster. Well, to make the con- it's fascinating, the contrast between COVID-19 and polio. So um, we've all read about when polio vaccines were introduced and they were not nearly as uh, effective, uh, protective as the um, COVID-19 vaccines. And yet 
the, the world cheered as front page news. Not, it's not to say this isn't front pages, but it was the most people, if not everyone, <laughs> celebrated. Whereas today, um, you've got a chunk of our community, of, of our neighbors, of our world, who have uh, cheered and celebrated these vaccines, but obviously another uh, large uh, part of the, of, of the world um, has not embraced them. So um, the, the world has changed, but again, these are much more effective than, than, than those early vaccines and, and many other vaccines, flu, et cetera. So they need to be celebrated, yes. Absolutely, and it's like, I mean, even even a lot of the people that have taken it uh, haven't been overly excited to do so. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. In terms of people that have celebrated, uh, like actually feel like have celebrated, that's like thirty percent of people maybe have yeah, that, celebrated yeah. for the vaccine. If it, I mean, it's. It's it's been hard for I've I've had a lot of different virologists and stuff on the show and it's I mean they they should be getting awards and parades and everything else and instead they're getting harassed by people um, constantly threats yeah, was, and there was data everything that just else came out I'm sorry this data just came out about how many who have spoken about uh, just encouraging the vaccines uh, how how many of them have been subject to abuse oh uh, absolutely right, uh, right abuse uh, it's it's Startling. I, I write in my book at the end, uh, sort of a plea for an appreciation of um, those in the world of healthcare, healthcare professionals, uh, public health officials, and um, is sort of sad. I, you know, my book is a positive book. Yeah. It's almost a fun book, I think, because others have written what went wrong. I try to write. My book is about what went right. So I try to make it a positive experience. I always feel if you're going to pick up one of my books. I've, I've written a number at this point. I, I want it to be a fun experience to some extent and, a, and an upbeat experience. But um, yeah, there's still so much to be discouraged about, unfortunately. All right. Well, let's let's have an episode all about appreciation. Um, so uh, so break it down. How in the world did this happen? So because I've, I've mentioned on the show before and uh, I, I, I don't know if, if this is your take on things, but um, you know, I've had past guests address the idea of like that this was a hasty thing or something like that, or, or that there was, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy around the idea of like, well, there's never been a vaccine this fast before. And I've, I've, I've had past guests address the fact that actually it wasn't that any corners were cut or anything. It was one, there was uh, a lot of global resources and focus and everything on it. But and two, the, just the the sheer number of cases created uh, created control groups quite a bit faster than something with like Ebola or something like that. So there was a lot of factors like that that were able to move some of the studies along. But I would uh, I would love your perspective on just how this happened so quickly. So I'm going to first um, disagree with you. I don't think it happened quickly in that <laughs> the point of my book really is that the research went back decades and I traced that research in terms mm -hmm. of the key vaccine approaches. Um, we were able to produce them quickly in 2020, uh, thankfully. So yeah, that point is obviously an accurate one. But um, my book, while it's not a, it's not a polemic, um, I do think one comes away from the book, or at least I came away from the research realizing that this work was not done quickly. Um, the, the, we're talking decades of, of hard work. So I start off with HIV, 
and the effort to find an HIV vaccine. I do that um, partly because to me, I find it fascinating, interesting characters, a lot of lessons, both for scientists, researchers, but everybody else too. Um, but also because while that never succeeded, they're still working on it. Um, and, and one of my key scientists may actually find a vaccine at some point, uh, Dan Baruch uh, up in Boston. Um, while that hasn't proved successful yet, the effort led to these COVID-19 vaccines. And why do I say that? Um, one of the key efforts was uh, by Merck. And um, that was two uh, efforts to find a vaccine for HIV. And not only did it prove unsuccessful, their vaccine uh, wasn't um, protective. It actually put more people, some people at risk of getting HIV. So it was an awful, terrible, haunting experience for those scientists working on it. And I write, and I write about that uh, in the book. And they used uh, ad five. Uh, I guess you have a more sophisticated audience, but adenovirus uh, five, it's basically um, using a, a common cold virus and you hitch a ride to, into the body on this ad five and uh, you put the gene uh, for HIV, um, one of the genes um, or piece of gene was another approach uh, onto that virus and um, you hopefully are, create a protective vaccine. So again, th that was unsuccessful and, and it was a awful, terrible um, um, experience, but um, ad five didn't work, but it led to two other approaches. One is ad 26 adenovirus 26, which is what Dan Baruch uh, up in Boston embraced. And uh, it was an offshoot of the Merck experience. And that eventually Dan Baruch worked with J&J &J, and that led to the J&J &J vaccine for COVID-19. And similarly, um, yes, ad five didn't work for Merck, but the chimp adeno approach was embraced by some uh, researchers at Oxford University. And that eventually led to the chimp adeno, which is the, at the heart of the of the um, AstraZeneca vaccine today. So in other words, going back to, again, as, as in, the, in the 80s and in, in 90s with the effort for HIV, that it did lead to, and it took years of honing that approach, it led to these COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, similarly, I start off back in 1990 when it comes to mRNA and a researcher uh, in Wisconsin named John Wolf, who's doing really early, really important work uh, he um, made a little bit of an advance with, with mRNA. He showed it could be a little bit effective. Uh, that led to, it was almost like a relay race. It led to work uh, done at Duke by some researchers. Uh, Ellie Gobo is his name and some of his colleagues. They were doing it in the lab. They weren't injecting it, but they were showing how you can actually, and they were working on cancer, you can um, use mRNA and actually create some proteins and, and get the uh, immune system to react to that in turn, again, like a relay race led to some other academics, um, some more famous than others. So again, even mRNA goes back to 1990 in, in, in my telling of the story. So one should come away from my book saying, well, geez, yes, they were able to produce these vaccines quickly. And we, we should talk about 2020 and the remarkable work that was done. But the, the ground was laid decades earlier um, by just hard, painstaking, patient work, resilient scientists, and really impressive researchers. So that's, I think, one of the takeaways from uh, my book. Uh, <laughs> what's your take on this Robert Malone guy that, that goes around claiming he was the uh, creator of the yeah, Malone, do, you, do, you, do you know who I'm talking uh, about? Yeah, I, I do. He I seems do. like a bit of a disgruntled uh, sort of character that that is now trying to um, get popular through yeah. kind of being controversial and 
there are frankly a few people like Malone who who did early work and um, you know played a role, and they believe they should get be given more credit for the role that they played. There are others that I write about in my book. There are others that um, I believe did, did play played a played roles. I don't think mm-hmm. they they necessarily played as big a role as they think they do. Um, that's true often in science. Um, one thing I've really appreciated writing about scientists is they are often very eager to talk about the advances that they contributed to. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And they're eager to tell you why everybody else didn't contribute as much as, as, as they did. Um, I say appreciate because I I appreciate the honesty and I appreciate people uh, sharing what they've done. Um, I come from a world where often people don't like talking to journalists. So, um, you know, just the fact that they open up and, and talk about their work is is something that I'm grateful for. But yeah, Malone, like others, um, you know, they believe they they played a bigger role than than maybe they're giving credit giving credit for. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, so yeah, I would I would love to hear a little bit more of that um of of that origin story. That's something that we haven't talked about at all on the show, and I I found the I've read two books recently on on kind of the history of uh, pandemics generally, and and it's one of the things that I think is kind of exciting about hearing this is is it's kind of a it's almost like a detective story or something. And you see you you see kind of some of the misunderstandings along the way and then some of the breakthroughs, some of the epiphanies that happen and uh and and it, it, once in a while there's a discovery made that it, the the that field is never going to be the same, you know, the uh, the advances made in in that area uh creates such an advance and um and so much is learned from it. Um so could we dig into that just a, a bit more? Sure. Sure. So I like to start with uh, and I started my book with a guy named John Wolf um who I find fascinating. He was interesting because he was both a scientist, a researcher, but he also uh, treated patients and he focused um early in his career, for much of his career, on young patients, um, pediatrics, and he treated them. So he was, you know, he served as a doctor. He was, even when I was completing a clinical fellowship in neuroscience back in San Diego at University of California, UC San Diego, um, he became somebody that parents brought their children to. And he would identify rare diseases in, in little boys and little girls, a lot of them that, that doctors missed. Um, and, you know, word kind of spread and people brought their kids to him. They saw him as a gifted diagnostician and um, he was good at at finding this stuff. And, um, but he, but these were devastating diagnoses. um, And his whole goal was to try to see if he could deal with them, maybe um, help these children, not just um, diagnose them, but they had, and they usually had some sort of defective gene. um, So they couldn't make some substance, um, something couldn't it didn't operate well so he'd go back in the lab and he'd try to find ways to help um and he'd, he'd, get, he'd get frustrated and, and didn't go that far we were talking we're talking like the late 1980s and you know people knew at that point all about dna and um they knew a little bit about uh rna um and uh he really just kind of wanted to, to to cure these kids you know um and he eventually he moved to um 
to Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin, and he kept doing sort of on the side, and he was like an obsessive, and he'd work all night, and his his kids and parents and his wife would kind of wait up, and he, sometimes he wouldn't be there, and he wasn't really good at much else in his life. He was a good father, but everything else sort of he dressed oddly, and he was just sort of an unusual guy. Um, but by the late by about 1990, late 80s, 1990s, he was kind of focused on. Uh, trying to help these children in the lab. And um, he he wanted to see, and he came at things a little bit differently, but he looked at these genetic defects and he kind of said, well, um, you know, um, we all know that, you know, DNA is copied, um, transcribed into mRNA, which is, you know, translated in, in, into proteins. And he was one of the first people that said, well, what, maybe we could just inject um, mRNA uh, and uh, healthy mRNA into the body and see if we can create healthy proteins and replace the ones and that, 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 that were necessary. Um, and, um, you know, people were skeptical. We all know historically people don't want to work with mRNA. And I write about a lot in my, in my book. Uh, we all know that it, um, uh, enzymes chop it up. It doesn't last long. Um, they're unstable. And people kind of say, don't waste your time with mRNA. Um, it's it, it just not worth your time. But he kind of said, hey, what if we can you know, what if I could synthesize and deliver normal DNA? He, he looked at, but also mRNA without any mistakes straight into the human cell, into human cells and just sort of replace defective cells. I'm sorry, reflective genes um, in his patients and, you know, create, create functional proteins. Um, and he tried early on and, and, and he made some progress. Um, and um, people were skeptical and he even sort of moved on and, Delivery was an issue in terms of creating consistent proteins, um, ample proteins to really do anything. He didn't really help any of his patients, uh, sadly, in the end. And he passed away in 2019, right before um, um, COVID really hit. Um, but um, he's the first one, I would argue. And, and Malone worked with him. You mentioned about Malone. Malone worked with him. And again, he, um, Wolf is the first name on the paper. Malone is the second. Malone um, played a role, but um, I write, I'm focus more on, uh, on Wolf. So um, he basically injected, and he used these like crude lipids, um, and eventually the lipids had to be improved. He wrapped them around mRNA, and that eventually is what um, people at Moderna figured out the, the right approach. But he got shots, uh, he showed how shots of, of mRNA encased by, by these lipids, um, um, could could create some proteins. Had had showed that there were some proteins, and that really excited him and excited some other people. You know, it wasn't publicized. It wasn't something that was on the front page news or anything like that. But he could show you. Could, he showed you could create functional proteins just by injecting mRNA. And and I would argue that's the first step along the along the way. Hmm. Um. We'll keep going. I I want to hear the next step. <laughs> well, yeah. So he he um. He published, uh, I believe it was March of 1990, um, they published their work in science. And it, again, it was the first successful use of mRNA. Um, and they kind of suggested, you know, maybe someday it would be a drug or you know, even a vaccine. Because um, once you create proteins, it opens up a whole whole world. But um, yeah, again, they were everyone knew there were all kinds of uh, obstacles in his way. Um, delivery was something that, and, and, and the key is, and, and I'm sure a lot of your audience is aware, but the, the, the key is that the body has these cells um, um, 
have these. Um, we, we, we FYI, we don't. Um, so a lot of this show, we we talk tons about how the brain works, tons of psychology, okay. a lot of evolution stuff. Um, so get into evolutionary biology and stuff like that. microbiology, not so much. Um, and, and we do from time to time, but it, it's never going to hurt us to have a refresher. Sure. So, uh, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be over explaining to. Okay, sure. Uh, so yeah, basically the idea with, uh, uh, creating messenger RNA, which is a molecule and it tells, um, the body cells, what proteins to make. So um, if you think about it, the, the possibilities are, are just remarkable. And that's why people have always kind of wanted to work with mRNA. Uh, the possibilities are, are remarkable because, well, if you can tell the body cells to create whatever proteins you want, I mean, who needs drugs? Who needs vaccines? You could just have the body make it them itself. You, you don't have to pump in this kind of stuff, let's say pieces of a, um, a pathogen, which can be dangerous potentially. You got to kill it um, or weaken it. That's historically how we made vaccines and, you know, all these, all these medicines. Who needs all that stuff if you could tell the body to create it? And, you know, fast forwarding, that's why venture capitalists and other investors got so excited about Moderna. That was the whole idea of Moderna. The body itself could be a, a drug factory, <laughs> its own drug factory. So, you know, so if that was so exciting and so promising, well, why didn't people get get carried away and, and embrace what Wolf was doing and some other people like Malone, other people doing well, because they teach you in, you know, biology kind of one on one that um, it's hard to get mRNA into the cell and it doesn't last. And that's because there are these things called uh, RNAs. They're like um, enzymes. They're not like enzymes. They are an enzyme um, that degrade their whole job. Uh, um, they're an enzyme in the cell that degrades the mRNA molecule, usually because it's had a chance to kind of deliver its instructions. Um, and, and there's a reason why the body has evolved that way, um, uh, to protect it and all and, and such. So it's hard to get mRNA into the cell. And frankly, for years, people always thought that delivery, and it, it, that was the challenge. You know, how do we get this mRNA. We can create it in the lab. We can tell the body what to do, but how the heck do we get it into the cell without um, the cell just um, chopping it up and these enzymes and and and, and um, evap they evaporate? You know, today again, you know, the people say, "Oh, well, I don't want to take one of these mRNA vaccines because it's going to change my DNA." Hardly, it doesn't. That the whole problem always has been that mRNA doesn't last. You know, for people that are scared that, oh, it's going to stay in my body and change my DNA. <laughs> no, the, the, the real challenge, and it still is the challenge. That's why we don't, we don't, have, we don't have any mRNA vaccines or, or drugs other than COVID, and we'll see if we can develop them, is because it's been so hard to avoid the immune system's um, defenses. And so getting back to Wolf, yeah, people kind of read what he did, and he got some money for a startup, and it didn't really go anywhere. Um but um, but people were still, yeah, okay, but it's mRNA. And that's what this guy, Ellie Gilboa at Duke and his colleagues kind of said. They they had their own challenges and they kind of said, they took the, the baton and they kind of, again, they're working on cancer and they're the ones who kind of were really focused on immune cells and how they're going to recognize and kill tumors. That's what they were really working on. And they, in the lab, were, were the next group that had a real breakthrough and they're the ones who kind of showed you can once again use mRNA? They were using working in the lab in the in the, in the dish, not uh, in, in in the body yet. Um, 
um, in vitro, but they were kind of saying, um, hey, we can actually, and they were working with dendritic cells, uh, which are, you know, these are these cells that play a really important role, activating T cells and generating immune response. Um, they were trying to help uh, these dendritic cells fight cancer, but they um, took mRNA and they showed you can get, um, again, activity in the immune system. Um, and they, they kind of shot the world in, in some ways and played a really uh, important role. Um, and, and, and there was a lot of serendipity. I mean, you'll read about it in the book, but basically they were just doing, they were doing every kind of experiment possible and they didn't really hope, they didn't really expect to find, to make much progress. And one day, kind of one of the lab technicians, I write about it, kind of slipped in mRNA. They were doing, using all kind of testing on, on everything on mice. And he slipped in just pure mRNA, pure mRNA into one of their, their, their tests, one of their experiments. And believe it or not, it, 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 showed, um, it, it, it showed progress of eliminating cancer in a, in a mouse, in mouse cells. And it shocked them. And um, they had to retest it a few times because they didn't believe it themselves, Gilboa and, and his colleagues. And other people at the time didn't think um, that what they had found was really legitimate. How can you actually, you're really going to affect cancer. You're going to, you're going to. Um, her, um, take away cancer cells uh, in the lab. Sorry, but, sure. Sorry, but but just so I'm tracking right. What around what year is this? 1996 uh, okay. is when they had this kind of uh, breakthrough. And listen, their mRNA. They basically they treated mice with this mRNA, and it wasn't. Yeah. They, they weren't doing that much better at getting rid of tumors, but the results were surprising. Because um, at the time, mm. most scientists kind of said, again, mRNA is too unstable. You can't be a vaccine. Can't be therapeutic, no matter what, you know, Wolf had done a few years earlier. Our conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom is just for years that the cell's enzymes are going to chew up the mRNA molecule before it's had a chance to help the immune system, to stir the immune system. And Gilboa showed that's not the case. Hmm. Huh. Yeah. I. One thing that, um, because it definitely my wheelhouse is more in um kind of uh understanding uh you know do, doing a little more of the science communication things of relating to the public and and there are it, what i love about people be getting the chance to hear a lot of this stuff and and hopefully um getting them to appreciate is i i, I don't know if it's just it, it seems I guess it's like naturalistic fallacies or something that happen where people want things natural and organic. And that means something to people that usually isn't terribly well regulated, but you kind of mentioned people worried about um, their DNA being altered. And there, there is, there is people are, there is a fear of science. People hear a few acronyms like this and hear, they hear like genetically modified or something. And, and I, I, I think I have something, I just saw something uh, recently that I had had uh, GMO free and everything. I'm like, well, that doesn't, I, <laughs> that's not really a selling point for me. Um, but I saw some survey recently that said something like 85% of the population is this agricultural Institute did a survey of a, a, a list of a bunch of different things to see how to, convey information to the public better and something something like 85 percent of people believed that food should be labeled um if it contains dna 
If it contains DNA. If your food contains DNA, wow, they, just they DNA, should put a warning, yeah, a warning yeah, label yeah. on it. Yeah, I guess it should be a warning if it doesn't contain DNA, if anything, <laughs> if we're going to put a warning on, on something. But, yeah, but, uh, scientific uh, education is not um, maybe where, where it should be, I guess. Yeah, but, um, uh, but that's... I just wanted to say because I I think the importance of of what you're doing and in, in communicating all of this is is showing people this step by step process of how you know I always loved math as a kid I wasn't a good student um in anything except for math and I just loved that you could show your work and you could show how you got there and other people could kind of work it out for themselves as well. And you could arrive at this sort of somewhat consensus or whatever. And I, I know things like microbiology are messier than your um, freshman year algebra one class or something. But, um, uh, but I, I really, how, how much, in your research, um, in, in, in doing interviews and sharing some of this research along the way with others, have you found that, um, that it makes people appreciate this process quite a bit more that people are like, Oh, I'd never really thought about it like that before, or, or it changes people's minds at all. I do. Um, and, and frankly, I understand the concern. I mean, for the average person, when you hear injecting DNA and injecting mRNA, they sound kind of similar. And truth, truthfully, injecting DNA into the nucleus of the body cells to, to, to um, create proteins is kind of tricky and, and potentially dangerous. And there have been issues um, with gene therapy and um, the patient, uh, I think it's James Wilson who died. And there are, they've been sad uh, and tr even tragic uh, episodes in the past. So I, I do think, and we haven't been able to prove that DNA injecting it has worked. So I kind of understand why the average person might hear mRNA and, and get confused with DNA. But that's why, I, you know, I help, I, I want to tell the world that, right, um, um, this is very different. And it's uh, been proven so far to be, uh, thank God, uh, relatively safe. And yeah, when you tell the full story, I think when you read the full story, I think you get a more of an appreciation for, for the care and the concern of these scientists. And they're not out to harm. They're they're out to help. How how much of these advances would you attribute to actual problems being solved and how many times uh, along this path are there just kind of theoretical predictions of issues that might come true in the future that that people are trying to find solutions for because you started kind of by talking about AIDS in the in the role of AIDS research and the um I forget the guy in Dan Dan Burick Dan Burick yeah yeah um so so basically I guess what I'm getting at is how much of the if you would have never had AIDS or never had polio or maybe even in the early 2000s with H1N1 and and the SARS and things like that that have popped up how 
How much does the field advance when an actual salient problem like that um, arises? And how much of this is done in the background, just predicting things that that have maybe stopped things from happening that we'll never even appreciate? That's a good question. Well, um, I think in some ways your question is two part. Uh, to answer your first part, I, I, I um, or maybe the second part. Um, I, I think you can actually make the argument it potentially that you're going to look back on this era, the COVID nineteen pandemic, as awful and horrible as it's been, and all the lives. And uh, I had an uncle who, who who died, and I've got a neighbor, so I'm well aware of of the tragedy of COVID nineteen and this pandemic. But um, you might be able to look back on it as a net net positive. Why do I say that? Because um, we've made these advances with mRNA and the companies yeah. that have that have been successful have made so much money and now they are turning to try to attack other longstanding problems, uh, most, multiple sclerosis. Um, and, and I have a family member dealing with that as well. Cancer. Me too. Um, yeah, these are just awful um, um, challenges that have that have um, been been unable we've been unable to solve obviously for, for decades and and it's not clear yet whether they will have that progress but they, they've got the money now and they've got the um, encouragement from Wall Street and investors and if Biontech and, and Moderna and the others there are others as well who have embraced mRNA and, and some of these other approaches too and and even AIDS if we can have breakthroughs there. It's hard again. It's hard to under, believe it right now, but you may look back and say uh, it was a net net positive in terms of public health. And going back to your other part of your question, yeah, it's not really theoretical um, obstacles do hold us back often, such as the bad rap that mRNA always had. Don't play with it. Don't use it. Don't waste your time with it. People lost their careers, and I write about it in, in my book for playing around with this stuff for, for for using it. It was just hard to handle and. Um, I have a, one little funny story where, where some, um, I think it was a postdoc or no, it was, PA, it was a young professor at a, at a you know, top university, burnt down her whole department and jeopardized her tenure because she was playing with mRNA and it was unstable and, and led to a big fire internally. Um, but it was a series of small advances, usually not appreciated by anyone along the way that has been happening all these years, like in, within, excuse me, within, um, Hold on one second. Within Moderna. Take your time. Okay, here, hold on one second. We can always edit little bits right. in there. Uh, within Moderna, they spent years um, having struggles and, and frustrations and um, making little advances that no one was aware of. There's a young woman, or at the time she was a young woman, uh, named uh, Carrie Beninato, and I write about her in my book, and she was the one who figured out um, how to get, or she, she made a big advance in terms of delivery. In other words, again, how do we get, how do we get this mRNA molecule that we've created in the lab to get it into the actual cells without the cells fighting it off the immune system? And it was a, 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 a series of really interesting, important work that she did in terms of chemicals and playing with different chemicals in the surrounding the, the encasement around the mRNA. And no one knew about it at the time. No one gave her credit other than some of her colleagues. No one outside Moderna cared about what they were doing or was aware of it. And that's kind of why I wrote this book in some ways, to give credit to the unheralded scientists and researchers along the way who struggled and persevered and were resilient and finally had success. And um, we owe our lives in some ways uh, to, to the, their, their perseverance. 
Yeah. I mean, I've, I've kind of mentioned things like this on the show in the past, but it's, uh, it, it much in the way that we, we, yeah, my perspective is, is that, that we should be celebrating the, the heroes that, that, uh, took part in, in all of this process and these advances. And, uh, but I don't anticipate seeing a parade anytime soon for them. We certainly aren't going to see many parades for the things that, the 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 pandemics that's that were stopped before they ever happened it's just so hard to it, it's hard to appreciate the the oil change that kept your engine from blowing <laughs> blowing up you yeah, know it's yeah and, and i i love the idea of uh, a shift more more money more incentive more uh more researchers more resources um being put into something like preventatives uh like vaccines instead of uh therapeutics which are i mean it's absolutely incredible the therapeutics that exist for aids now and and yes yeah in a world in a world where they don't exist, it's a much, much worse world. But that's those aren't without, you know, lots of problems and lots of side effects and lots of like people having to stay on top of taking rather expensive medications very regularly and and, uh, you know, and making sure people are taking them correctly and everything else. When you compare something like that to a vaccine it's it's I, I i mean if you if you have if you have kids that are born say 50 years from now that maybe and maybe this is far-fetched but maybe they don't ever have to live in a world that has cancer um they would never you know they're they're never going to appreciate that they're never going to uh they're, they're yeah, never going yeah. to be like hooray we don't get these weird tumor things that we heard about in history what, books. what about measles what about measles and, and, and um rubella and smallpox and um polio there, there's so many diseases that um that haunted um our parents generation grandparents generation that we, we take for granted and and there was even talk now about kind of ignoring and, and, and not getting vaccinated and such. Yeah, um, but both the vaccinations aren't appreciated enough and, and, and the researchers themselves. And that's one, one of the I've been just so impressed by these researchers, largely because, you know, I write about the success stories. Well, for every one of those, there's, you know, 10 that's been in a lab and downstairs in the bowels of some basement and making small progress every day. He or she. Um, has hope, has has reason to keep plugging away, but without much evidence that they're going to make much progress, and often they don't. So um, I I uh, I give them a lot of credit. I don't. Uh, I want you know. I'm trying. I'm trying to keep this as. It sounds like you wrote a very positive book, and I'm appreciative for that. I I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. One thing that's been on my mind, maybe you'll relieve me a little bit, is that. In terms of taking things for granted, and you mentioned measles there, we have a polio vaccine. So I think measles is measles is really on a, kind of a knife's edge of it. I think there's I 
I think the way the math works out, it needs to be right around 93% or something like that of a population needs to be vaccinated for their from measles for there to be a, 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 an effective kind of herd immunity to it. And whenever communities start dropping below that, measles starts popping. You know, Andrew Wakefield or someone like that goes into Minneapolis and and starts spreading conspiracies and, and the rates go down. And sure enough, a couple decades later measles start popping up and i'm very worried right now with all of the uh, where people were just kind of on autopilot in terms of giving kids their measles vaccines and everything before we're we're concerned about you know getting more covid vaccines into people's arms but i'm concerned that people are going to stop vaccinating their kids at the same rates that they were before covid as well and and part of that is is because the advances were so successful that we're privileged enough to get to live in a world where we don't have to come face to face with measles and polio and things like that on a regular basis and because of that we there's like a uh, we kind of loosen up our guard. Yeah, I, I try to stay positive and um, not get discouraged. And um, again, I wrote this book to um, to shed light and show that how serious minded and dedicated these researchers are to helping us all to public health. But um, it's hard not to get discouraged by the fact that um, knowledge people don't care about expertise anymore or, or as they used to or, or a chunk of our society we don't want to say everybody but more people i mean they're ignoring their own internists people that treated them for you know a decade or two and they trusted for a decade or two suddenly they'd rather defer to someone that they saw on youtube um who may not have any expertise whatsoever in the field yeah. uh so yeah it, uh, it's a discouraging uh, uh time we're in um all right well back to the positive side so let, let's <laughs> so let's let's talk about a, a little more of the uh, more modern the the things that happened in uh in the last 20 years or so and and then moving into what happened in in the year um uh leading up to the vaccine um that that happened there sure so basically what i write about in my book is how on the eve of this pandemic, the coronavirus, uh, in late 2019, three different newish, newer or newish vaccine approaches um, had been, had advanced. And we're talking mRNA, but we're also talking the um, viral vector using this adenovirus uh, approach, um, hooking uh, uh, hooking a ride, hopping a ride onto this virus, which they, you would inject as as part of the vaccine and into the body and the protein subunit, which had been used for, for some vaccines. So a more reliable approach, um, but not for everything. And basically there were companies, there was this company Moderna, this company BioNTech, and a company called Novavax. And there's a group in, in Oxford, uh, I write about University of Oxford, and this guy Dan Baruch in his lab uh, in Boston, and J&J was working with them. So basically there's five efforts and they thought they had approaches that would work to vaccines, but there was, Remarkable amount of skepticism at the time about all of their efforts. Well, yeah, on paper, maybe you guys can come up with a vaccine, but you've never shown it. It's never been a, a drug that really works with, with these vaccines, with these approaches, mRNA, etc. So on the eve of this pandemic, these researchers, these scientists thought they had 
pretty reliable, successful approaches, but they weren't sure. So then um, this, this pandemic, this virus emerges, and they all say, this is going to be our chance. We can, we're going to prove the skeptics wrong. We are going to prove that our approach can create protective, effective vaccines. And they threw themselves into it. And I give them all a lot of credit because they did it early on. We're talking early in January uh, or late January 2020, when all the experts kind of said, or the vaccine giants, well, let's see. Like, I know, again, Merck was waiting and trying to see. We're not 100% sure it's going to be a pandemic. And maybe we should work on this thing. Maybe we should. And there was a lot of internal um, dissension within Merck because there were scientists who said, hey, we are the vaccine experts. We should be the ones at the forefront. But in the end, it was these kind of upstarts, these un, unappreciated, underappreciated scientists at, at places like BioNTech and Mainz, Germany, who said, no, we're, we're going to throw ourselves into this thing. And um, they, they they had all kinds of challenges during 2020. We could talk about them. So it, it wasn't an easy process. Now we look back on it. Well, they kind of in a few months produced vaccines, but it was touch and go for a long time. So what are... Um were there any uh salient moments where there was like a day or the a period of time where it was like we got it this this is uh, uh we we figured it out we cracked it so early on they all found um evidence that their vaccines uh, were protective, or at least first that, that they stirred the immune system and created uh, neutralizing antibodies, which um, in, in animals. And this is, we're talking, you know, early, early in, in 2020. And yeah, it wasn't humans yet, but it was enough to encourage them. It was enough to kind of give them confidence. And I should also mention there were scientists they worked with, Moderna did at the NIH, and they too, early on, were pretty optimistic. So early on, they had some evidence of just creating protective um, neutralizing antibodies uh, in animals. We're talking mice, a little bit monkeys too, but it wasn't yet humans. And then they first had some kind of early phase one data, which was encouraging. So slowly they had more encouraging data. But for some of them, let's say Moderna, for example, um, they had lots of frustrations too. They had, um, and, and even... Um, they were they were fearful. Why were they fearful? Because they didn't have any money to produce these vaccines. They were a, at one point a hot IPO. They came out. People got excited, but the stock went down over time. People weren't thrilled that they had shifted to vaccines. Um, by early 2020, they had some money in the bank, but they were already cutting costs. They had to restricting travel internally, and they were they they were torn. The scientists within the company and, and the others too. The manufacturing people, they, they said, on the one hand, we are sure we've got a vaccine that's going to save lives, COVID-19 vaccine. On the other hand, they didn't have money to produce the vaccines. And the pandemic was, was expanding. They had family members who were dying, literally, and they wanted to be the ones to save the day. And they couldn't. And they tried. They went to places. They went to places like Gates Foundation, other nonprofits, endowments, and tried to raise money. We're talking Stefan Bensel, the CEO of Moderna. And he kept getting the door slammed in his face. And he was like a master salesman. And even he couldn't get people to write checks to help them produce vaccines. So in other words, they, they made a vaccine, but they couldn't do it in bulk. And they didn't have the money. They, had literally, they literally needed like a billion dollars and they couldn't get it. And can you imagine sitting on a vaccine that you knew was going to protect family members, um, others, save lives, and not being able to produce enough of it to, to get going. And finally, 
they got lucky. They um, convinced the investment bank, Morgan Stanley, to buy shares. They bought over, I think it was like $1.2 or $1.3 billion of uh, Moderna's shares. And they used that money. They wrote a check. Moderna, um, Morgan Stanley wrote a check for a bill, over a billion dollars. And in turn, Morgan Stanley sold those shares to their uh, clients. And Moderna took that check and ran, ran, ran. They produced lipids. They, they created uh, syringes and casements, all the manufacturing, everything that was needed. And um, frankly, if that hadn't happened, I'm not sure Moderna wouldn't have been able to, to save as many lives as, as it had. So it, it is sort of ironic. We, we um, are very critical often of big pharma and biotech, and they just care about making money. And we hate Wall Street, too. They hate making money. And listen, I, they only care about making money and not saving lives. And listen, I'm at the Wall Street Journal, and often we write critical stories of both those industries. But in this case, mm -hmm. we need to uh, be appreciative. They stepped up, and they... Um, helped us quickly create these vaccines. And again, when I say quickly, the key is, and I think you, you referenced it earlier, they weren't doing anything faster than usual in terms of the trials, in terms of the manufacturing, uh, in terms of the production. It's just that they were doing it all at once. And that's never before happened, where you have drug trials while you're actually producing, you're manufacturing the vaccines, getting them ready to ship out. You're, do, you're doing the drug trial. That's never happened before. And it is potentially a model for, for the future. Yeah, I mean that, that would be it's I I understand the logic of someone's concern of you don't want something that's hastily made and corners are cut if that's your misunderstanding in my opinion of the situation. But um at the same time it's like well how how long would you like it to take? You, you, would, you, would, you, would, <laughs> right. you would like a global pandemic to be right, longer? Right, right. Or? Right, right. The average um, time it's taken historically for a vaccine, an effective vaccine to be produced is a decade. The, yeah. the record until now, until COVID-19, was four years. Do you really write? Would you prefer yeah. that they drag their feet and take their time and spend four to ten years on this thing? I don't think you would. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that... Wow, that that Moderna thing, that's gonna stick with me. That's a that's an interesting one. I did not know that. Yeah, um, yeah, hmm. yeah. And, and I mean, I, I mean, uh, absolutely. We should be we should be aware that incentives can uh, corrupt even even unconsciously, and we can all have motivated reasoning and everything. It's certainly the homeopathic community has has had. Plenty of bad actors throughout yeah, yeah, all yeah, of. Yeah. That's a good point too. Right? Every, every industry's got a share of bad actors, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, so I don't think it's all on. And it's also like, I mean, so much of this through the pandemic. I, I, I guess I should try to check myself how frustrated I get, but it's. I mean, what? I don't know what the alternative to a big pharma vaccine would be maybe there is something in other countries but it's like what, what do you want a homeopathic vaccine i mean no, you aren't no, going to no, make other, this in your bathtub the alternative is something like russia where they're using the ad5 it's a approach that um has led to problems in the past for the covid it looks like it's okay vaccine but it's not dated that we want what what is that? The ad uh, it's, it's, it's using this virus. There's a denovirus yeah, called, yeah. and it's right, basically right. a cold virus. And um, it's relative. It's it's more common than you would want it to be. So in other words, um, 
it's it's one that the body some some of the body's immune system recognizes and fights off so it's less effective as a result and that's why the aids vaccine didn't work for Merck. they were using this relatively common cold virus and it's not that it um um, we have to worry that it's it's going to cause colds or, or cause ill, but it's one that the immune system uh, recognizes and fights off. So in other words, it can't um, teach the immune system. That's the whole, what, what is a vaccine? What was a vaccine? What's the whole point of a vaccine? Vaccine teaches the immune system, educates the immune mm-hmm. system to recognize a piece or a version of some pathogen, some illness, some disease, so that when the body sees it in the future, if it ever does, um, it knows, aha, let's go, I got to go attack that thing. So again, R- Russia used another approach and yeah, they're not big pharma. So you want to use that approach. It's just not as effective. China is not big pharma either. Their vaccines aren't as effective either. There's a reason why China uh, is meeting with BioNTech, um, this company that worked with, with Pfizer. They like the BioNTech vaccines. So um, right, the alter- I'm not sure what the alternative is other than big pharma. And, and, and frankly, the, 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 the companies, the researchers and scientists I write about in my book, they're not big pharma. They are now big pharma, but they weren't in 2020. They were kind of tiny pharma. <laughs> they became big pharma because they've had the success. So um, to dismiss any any public publicly traded or uh, and um, scientists, um, companies, or even those that are private that are backed by venture capital. I mean, we need the profit incentive to um, get these people. It takes it takes hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe more billions sometimes to get some of these vaccines going to do the research. So who's going to come up with that money? Uh, the government doesn't always have that kind of money. So uh, yeah, we mm. need, and and listen, there are all kinds of incentives in, in life. Um, some of the scientists in my book, they want to be famous. Some of them want to save lives. Some of them want to get rich. Some of it's some combination thereof. That's fine. Right. You know, we all got up this morning for some combination of motivations too. Right, so, right. So uh, yeah, I, I, I don't believe it's in, in like sort of black and white. It's all some, some gray. There aren't any evildoers and, and always and, and, right. and, and heroes either. Yeah. I mean, and even when I said, uh, also when I said like bad actors and various homeopathic or wellness communities, I don't think that any of them are sitting there plotting. I think I, or, or maybe some of them are, but, but I think that there's just motivated reasoning that comes along with a lot of these things that, that, uh, that, you know, you have a you have a particular perspective, and uh, or you you make profit off of something, or you just it's it's your livelihood, or you're a chiropractor, or whatever else. And there's there's reasons to take a particular perspective, yeah. and yeah. It, it's it is amazing how incredibly political <laughs> all, all of this got. And when I say that, I I guess I try not to. I try to be somewhat self-aware enough to realize that I'm, I'm sure I'm falling victim to the very thing that I'm accusing others of, of uh, you know, making things more political than they need to be. But it is an issue. What what um, I, uh, let's end on a really positive Good. note. Um, I was so we talked about, you know, potential with cancer mrna maybe a aids vaccine in the future um i i i'm with you i've said this um many times to people that i i do think that there will be a net positive that comes from this whole covid-19 situation what would you say your best guess what will be the the next kind of 
big headline, maybe in the next five to 10 years, that will come about the next big advance that will come about because of COVID-19, because of the the catalyst that that um, that happened during well, this time? It's a good question, and it's hard to predict these things. I think the next thing we should look for is um, an, a universal kind of coronavirus slash flu vaccine, a much more effective flu vaccine. And you have to remember, millions of people have died of flu, so you, that'll be really very helpful. I do think using mRNA and, and some of these other approaches is going to help there. Um, I think in the near term, you also might see a vaccine for RSV. RSV is a disease, a virus that um, kills um, many, um, both babies, uh, infants, uh, as well as elderly. And um, and we've struggled to come up with history. I read in my book that some of the same people working on COVID-19 have spent their careers, we're talking decades, trying to tackle RSV. I'm, I'm very optimistic when it comes to RSV, companies like Moderna and others have seen um, reasons uh, for excitement. Um, some other diseases too that 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 I that aren't as publicized, aren't as famous, but um, I think we're going to make some some headway. And yeah, and then down the line, I, I I'm, I'm hopeful when it comes to cancer. Listen, the reasons to think that maybe it'll just mRNA won't be as applicable to everything uh, that we hope. It's not magic. Um, one of the problems is targeting parts of the body, and for some of these vaccines, you're going to need to target specific parts of the body as opposed to uh, the coronavirus and, and protecting um, from COVID-19 where you don't need to. It's, it's in some ways right. much easier. But um, yeah, I've got all kinds of excite reasons to excite me. And, and also, frankly, speaking to the, the executives, speaking to the scientists, speaking to the, everybody at these companies and these different groups and government and, and non-government, I know that these guys are not sitting back and and counting their cash right now. Um, one thing that's really struck me about some of the uh, research, especially at places like Moderna is they're a mess. So they own shares. Some of them are billionaires. Some of them um, don't have to work anymore. And yet they're psychologically, they're, they're, they're destroyed after this past year because they literally been working, you know, 20, 27, <laughs> maybe not 24 seven, but they're very on very little sleep right now. And, um, you know, I don't, hey, I don't want to be portrayed as like so empathetic, a big, big farmer, but I am uh, appreciative of how hard they've worked and they continue to work. And they're getting a lot of criticism now for not sharing the vaccine abroad in uh, third world countries. And I get that. There, I, I think there are ways to to um, have a compromise there. And, and, and I think they're trying hard. I really do. The people that I've talked to there. But um, I know they're working flat out on, and, and pivoting. And we're talking BioNTech too, this German company that I write about. They're pivoting to every other disease and ill uh, out there that they're trying to, to cure and use mRNA, but other, these other methods too. So I can't wait to, to see what they do next. Well, since you, since you mentioned getting the vaccine to other countries, that is something that it's, I mean, it is a huge concern as, as frustrated as I might be here in the U S that, um, we still have a large percentage of the, um, the population that, uh, that could get the vaccine and doesn't it. I don't know enough about the logistics of this stuff. It, it almost seems like it would be, uh, cheaper or easier to just 
get the vaccine to willing people that would actually take it in other countries to prevent variants and other things like that uh, from taking off, which I know that's not the responsibility of, of a big pharma company or anything, but, it, but from, uh, from the government perspective, I'm, I'm surprised that there's not more being done to get the world vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, I wish there was more being done. Uh, there are a lot of explanations. It's not easy to get these vaccines often to other countries. Um, the mRNA ones need to be uh, kept at cold temperatures. Not every country has that ability to store uh, super cold temperatures, otherwise degrades. Um, handing over the tech, people say, well, just, they should hand over the technology. They should hand over the, the IP. Just handing it over doesn't do enough. Uh, it needs to be manufactured. These are these country these companies have literally spent years perfecting their manufacturing techniques. Now it, you can't overnight just start manufacturing in a traditional um, facility in other countries. So there needs to be um, work done, and it takes time. Um, so um, I, I, I'm I'm trying to be patient w with them, and, um, and 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 I'm and I'm trying to be hopeful that. We will be able to help uh, others uh, less fortunate than ourselves. Well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing these stories. This is really fascinating. Sure. Um, I'm uh, I'm so excited for listeners to check out the book, which at the time that this episode is released, again just came out yesterday. So brand spanking right new, nice. A shot to save the world: yes. the inside story of the life or death race for a COVID nineteen vaccine. Gregory Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining me. It was Gregory. a pleasure. This Have a great, a great day, and um, I invite people to reach out to me and give me their thoughts on the book and. Uh, love to have an exchange of uh, ideas with people thank you so much and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you more next week